our hearts, to remind us of beautiful truths that we know, to teach us things that you want us to hear today. And so, God, we pray that your spirit would work among us and in us and that we would be stirred to go forth to serve you. God, we thank you for your abundant grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, at this time, the kids can be dismissed to Children's Church. And if the rest of you will open your Bibles with me. And if you don't have a Bible or if you forgot yours this morning, there's a pew Bible close to you. And uh, our passage this morning begins on page 887. And uh, I encourage you to follow along as we walk through the scriptures this morning. Um, Well, as you're turning there this morning, I want to begin, first of all, I just want to commend you as our church family. Um, I was having a conversation last week after church with someone. They're able to be at church here occasionally. And uh, they just made a really good observation, encouraging observation. Um, They had talked about over the years they visited Eastside that uh, they have been really encouraged with what they're seeing in terms of the spirit of our church. Uh, They were talking about how friendly people are, about people engaging them, seeking to have conversations. They were encouraged by how long people stick around after church, engaging, just talking with one another. And uh, I just want to commend you, church family, for that. That is a positive sign of a healthy church. So let's keep it up. Yeah, give yourselves a hand. I'll do that. But we recognize that it is not, it is God's work in us. As we understand the two greatest commandments, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, if that's a reality, then the second commandment will, will follow from it, that we will love others as ourselves. And so that is uh, what I'm encouraged with. Well, this morning, we are uh, turning in our Bible to John chapter 3, and we are turning our focus a little this morning from where we've been over the last several Sundays. Uh, the last several Sundays, we've been talking about the topic of prayer. And as we talked about prayer, we talked about the essential nature of it. We talked about some characteristics of it and how we want to be a praying church. Uh, Not just a church that prays occasionally over some different things, but a church that is praying, that we are immersing our ministries and our lives into this this attitude of prayer that we are depending on God. And we've used a picture, um, this picture we've seen over the last month or so, And it helps us to understand our responsibility in terms of what God has done for us. As we think about how it all begins, it all starts with God's work. That God created everything and in the work of salvation, that God begins that work in us. So God works. And as God works, he creates faith in us. And as we exercise that faith, the faith is then translated into faithfulness. That that is why we are doing things. Our faith turns to action and that faithfulness. And as we're faithful, God continues to work. For instance, when we pray, God answers our prayers. He works. It builds our faith. We continue to pray. This morning, we are changing gears, and we're going to begin on the second of three topics that we're spending some time in over these next, last month and the next couple months. Last month, it was prayer, and this, week it's, this month, it's going to be on evangelism. And um, I want to encourage you, we have some books in the Connection Point, little bitty books um, by Nine Marks Ministry. They do great work. It's a little book called Evangelism. And the subtitle is How the Whole Church Speaks of Jesus. And uh, I would encourage you to read this. Um, Some of the quotes that we'll be sharing in the messages and stuff come from this. Um, We're not not preaching through this, but uh, it'll be a good tool. Um, On Sunday mornings, we're going to have discussion time. If you want to read it and talk about it um, in in the uh, overflow room on Sunday mornings at nine, uh, we'll be talking through this uh, with some people from the church. But I want to point you to that resource and encourage you to take a look at it. So as we think about God's work and faithfulness, we want to be faithful in the area of prayer 
We also want to be faithful in the area of evangelism. And so, as we review just a little bit from where we've been, prayer is simply talking to God. Okay? And we define prayer according to a definition by a man named Alvin Reed this way, that prayer is intimacy with God that leads to the fulfillment of his purposes. And so there are two big ideas in this. One is prayer is about our relationship with God. It's intimacy with God. But it's also, it leads to the fulfillment of his purposes. And what that means is that we're praying for God's will to be done, to be work in us and at work in the world. So if prayer is talking to God, a simple definition of evangelism would be prayer is talking about God. Well, we need to build on that definition, of course. And so here's a definition that we're going to use in our series, and this is rooted in some of the writings in the book. But it says this, that evangelism is teaching the gospel with an aim to persuade others to know, love, and live for Jesus. Okay, so evangelism. What is our role in evangelism? To teach the gospel. To teach the truths of God's word, that we want to teach that. We realize it is the Spirit of God using the word of God to convert people, and so it is our responsibility to teach the gospel of Jesus. And we do that, though, not just so that we get the information out, but we're doing this to persuade people. We want to win them. We want to see them surrender their lives to Christ so that they know him, that they love him, and they live for him. Because what we're actually calling them to is what we're doing, to be a people who know, love, and live for Jesus. So as we have this background in John chapter 3, we begin in a passage to looking at how does Jesus engage with others in the context of evangelism and teaching them the gospel so that they would know, love, and live live for him. Uh, This week we're going to be in John 3. Next week we're going to be in John 4 and look at another interaction that Jesus has with someone. But let us begin in chapter 3, verse 1, and we're going to read these first few verses and we're going to work through this passage slowly. But it begins in John 3, 1, saying, Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, we pause here understanding what's going on. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's a a religious ruler. He says he's a ruler of the Jews. He studies the word of God. He's committed to following the word of God. He's committed to being a good person. He is uh, seeking to keep God's law because he believes that his righteousness comes by being a Jewish person and doing what God calls him to. And he comes to Jesus and he comes to him at night. And he comes to him at night because the Pharisees as a whole have become oppositional to Jesus, that, that they, are, they want to get rid of Jesus. But Nicodemus is noticing some things, and he is noticing some things that have caught his attention, and he comes to Jesus. And he says this, he says, Rabbi, that means teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God. And we say, well, how does he know that? Well, he says, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, this idea that says no one can do these signs, the signs are the miracles. Okay? But in the book of John, John uses this word signs over and over and over again instead of miracles. It's interesting that John does that because what do signs do? Right? Signs give us information. They reveal things to us. Signs point us in a direction. And so these miraculous works that Jesus is doing aren't simply to show off his power, but they're to point us to something to reveal some things to us. 
And they're beginning to reveal to the Pharisee here, to Nicodemus, that, gee, this guy's from God. Because there's no way people, somebody could heal the, heal the blind, raise the dead. There's no way somebody could do this stuff unless God's with him. So he's recognizing that. And yet, in the midst of that, he's still in the darkness. One of the things that we see in this passage, and we see it throughout the book of John, is John is talking about this um, events that are going on. So when he comes to Jesus in the darkness at night, it's dark. But John also uses darkness to refer to a spiritual darkness. He refers to light as spiritual light. And as Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, he is certainly there in the cover of night, but he's also there in the cover of his own darkness. And Jesus is going to address that darkness to give this man hope. And so Jesus then says in verse 3, he um, says in verse 3, it says, And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. He talks to him about, it, about being a teacher of, uh, from God. And Jesus just like comes right here. It's as though Nicodemus wants to kind of lead this discussion, ask some questions. Jesus is like, I got a better idea. Why don't I just tell you what you need to know? And what you need to know is that no one, he says that, that unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, this would have resonated with, with a Pharisee because they were all about the kingdom of God. They wanted the kingdom of God to come. They wanted to be people who were participating in the kingdom of God. He was eager for that. And as a Pharisee, as a follower of the Jewish law, he was assuming that the manner in which he was going to get to the kingdom of God is by what he did who he was, that, those were the things that were going to get him there. But this verse, Jesus says to him, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And this idea of kingdom of God, we could sub in that idea, unless one is born again, you cannot go to heaven. Unless one is born again, you cannot have eternal life. All of those ideas are included in this. And so there's an essential thing that has to happen for our relationship with God to be right and that we must be born again. Now, this idea of born again, if, some of, if you look closely in your Bible, in many of your Bibles, next to the word again is a little number. Several of your Bibles have that little number or letter next to that. Okay? Now, why that's there is because that word born again, if you look down at the bottom footnote, it says born from above. And, and so scholars would debate, is Jesus saying you must be born again or born from above? Because the Greek word could be translated either way. Okay, in other places in Scripture, it's translated above, and he, in other places, it's born again. And so, now, the consequence of whether we see it, you have to be born again or born from above, either way we take that, the reality is a new birth has to take place. A new birth has to take place, so, and both would be right. I have to be born again a uh, second time. I have to be born of God um, to, to have a life as well. So either way we understand that, the principle is the same. We need new life. Because when he says that we have to be born again, it has the implication that the first way that we are born, that we are fundamentally flawed that in our first birth, that we are fundamentally flawed. Well, let's, let's look at what Nicodemus says, because Nicodemus in verse 4, he says, while scholars may not 
clearly understand, does Jesus mean above or again? Nicodemus gets it, and he says, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And so Nicodemus is clearly thinking about this on an earthly level. I mean, Jesus says you have to be born again, and he's like, that's weird, <laughs> right? I mean, how does somebody, I mean, I'm, I'm born at seven or eight pounds and kind of get that coming out. How do you go backwards in this? This makes no sense to him. And it makes no sense to him because Nicodemus is in the dark, in the spiritual dark. Uh, the scripture tells us in the book of First, First Corinthians that the natural man does not understand the things of God. See, apart from God's work in us, the scriptures and the biblical truths and spiritual truths were blind to them. And so Nicodemus is spiritually blind. He's in the darkness. He doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about. And so Jesus explains to him then in verse 5, he says, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Okay, these two births, water and the Spirit. He explains that a little more in verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is the Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So he explains what he means by born again. He says you have to be born of water and of spirit. You have to be born of flesh and of spirit. So the second birth is by what? The spirit. What's the first birth? Water and flesh. Now, there's debate about what I mean by water. One idea some people have is that you have to be born of water. That means baptism. Well, baptism is nowhere in this. And if baptism is what caused us to be born again... That means I'm just born once of water and spirit, get converged into one thing. And so it clearly does not mean that baptism saves us. Okay, baptism is a picture of, of what's already happened to us. Um, others would say that as a Pharisee, that there are some uh, passages in Ezekiel that talk about being sprinkled clean with water, and so it may be this ritual cleansing. But what we get from it, however we take that, is that there have to be two births. One's a natural birth, and who gives birth to you the first time? Mom. Who gives birth to you the second time? The Spirit. Okay, so we have these two births. Now, why is this significant? It's significant because in our first birth, as I said a moment ago, we are fundamentally flawed. We are born into sin. In Psalm 139, David is talking about... Um, Psalm 130. Anyway, in the Old Testament, it's either Psalm 139 or 51. It says that Jesus, I think it's 51. Um, I'm pretty sure it's Psalm 51. Anyway, you can look it up. It says, David says, in iniquity or in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, he's not talking about his mom um, had an immoral relationship and that conceived me. What he's saying, from the time of my conception, I have been a sinner. That from the time of my conception, I've been a sinner that we would read in the book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 12. And let me read that for you. In Romans 5, 12, it says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death spread through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. What that verse is teaching us and referring to is that all of us who have been born of Adam, 
that we've been born in this natural state, born of our mom and our mom's birth and all that, that we are born in sin. And Scripture says that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But in our very nature, in our, in our first birth, we are fundamentally flawed. Now, that's significant. If we're fundamentally flawed in our first birth, we're messed up. We need help. We need God's rescue because when, when we then live out a life of sin, we are demonstrating that my first birth, that I'm flawed in that. Now, this has significant implications in our culture because in our culture today, we want to so often say, well, because this is just the way I am. My dad was an alcoholic. My uncle was an alcoholic. My great uncle was an alcoholic. It's just how I was born. And because I'm born this way, this is just who I am. I'm born this way. I want to say, okay, fine, you're born that way. What does God call us to be? Born again. We think in the realm of sexuality, we hear that big news, you know, well, this is how I was born, and I'm born this way. Okay, fundamentally flawed. We are all born fundamentally flawed. All of our desires, all of our interests, all of everything that we're about is distorted and it's twisted. And what does God say to us when we say, well, that's how I was born. That's my, like Jesus says, be born again. That's the hope of the gospel is that we can be born again, that we can be made new. And we can be made new by the Spirit of God. And so we see this then in verse 9. Well, in verse 7, it says, Do not marvel that I said you must be born again. And then he begins to describe the process. He said, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And he's saying there is this work of the Spirit that we're born of, and the Spirit works kind of like the wind. I mean, imagine watching, let's suppose you're on a, it's on a Saturday afternoon, you're sitting out at your house and the wind's blowing and you're watching a leaf fall and the wind's blowing gently. How does that leaf fall? It kind of doesn't just fall like in a direct path. It kind of floats around and it blows. And, and if you're trying to predict where is it going to go next, how accurate are your predictions? Well, I don't get why it goes where it goes. It just, it, it just does what it does. And this passage is telling us that's how the Spirit of God works. In causing people to be born again, that there's not a magic formula for us to put together and put the Spirit in a box to say, if we do this and we do this and we do this, the Spirit will work in this way. No. We're called to be faithful, but we must trust the Spirit to be at work and bringing new life. He is the agent, the one who is causing this new birth. And so, as we see these principles, what I want us to see in this big, first big point is this, that we must be born again to see the kingdom of God. We must understand we're all fundamentally flawed in our first birth, and we need a new birth. We also recognize that the Spirit of God is the agent of new birth. He is the one who causes us to be born again. He works in us. And so, as believers, if we are going to be faithful Faithfulness requires us to be people of prayer, that we would be praying and trusting the Spirit to work, 
that we would be praying, God, open the eyes and the hearts of unbelievers. God, open the eyes and the hearts of my brother, of my parents. God, open their eyes and heart. God, allow the Word of God to penetrate them. And we would be people of prayer, knowing that it's the Spirit of God that has to be at work if anybody's going to be born again. And so, this process of being born again, to see people who are born fundamentally flawed, to see them fundamentally transformed, to be made new creatures in Jesus Christ, that it begins with us praying. Praying and trusting the Spirit, the one who causes that. He is the one who brings us out of darkness. Well, let's continue in our passage in verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, So Jesus says, you have to be born again. He says, I don't get it. And he says, well, you have to be born again by the Spirit. He says, well, how's that work? In verse 9, how can these things be? And Jesus answered and said, you are a teacher of Israel, yet you do not understand these things. This is a rebuke to this guy who's a religious leader. He's saying, you ought to know the answer to this. Because he goes on, he says, truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and hear and witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. He says, you're fighting against us. You're fighting against my teaching. I've been telling you things that you should have heard, but you also should have picked up from the Old Testament. And he says, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And again, he's helping Nicodemus to understand, Nicodemus, you are spiritually blind. You are in spiritual darkness. You're not understanding this. And he says, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, that's Jesus. He says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Okay? And in verse 15, we get the answer to Nicodemus' question. Nicodemus' question was, how can this happen? How can someone be born again? And he says, whoever believes has eternal life. Now, back up to where Jesus started with this. He said, Nicodemus, you should have known this. Why should Nicodemus have known that it requires belief to have the king, see the kingdom of God? Well, because all the way back in Genesis, in the book of Genesis, when Abraham begins to follow God, we are told that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. How did Abraham get right with God to see the kingdom of God? By faith alone, by grace alone, and the promises that would be fulfilled in Jesus alone. And he says, you should have picked that up. And so he tells him all this that you have to believe. Well, in verse 14, though, he said, talks about this serpent in the wilderness. It's like, what's the story? What's that about? A serpent in the wilderness that gets lifted up on a stick? That's weird. Okay, well, it's not weird if we rewind all the way back to the book of Numbers, chapter 21. And in that passage, the Israelites are wandering through the desert because of their rebellion against God, and they're complaining and moaning, and God, in his judgment to get them to turn back to him, he sends these poisonous snakes to start biting people, and people are dying because of it, all right? Which is pretty, I mean, you got this plague of snakes invading your village or whatever, you're like, yikes, this is terrible. And so people are getting bitten by snakes, and they're poisonous snakes. You get bit by a poisonous snake, you die. And so the people cry out, God, help us. Moses, do something. 
So Moses talks to God, and God says to him, okay, Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make a snake. I want you to make it out of, out of, out of this metal, and I want to put it on a pole. And you tell people, hey, if you get by, bit by a snake, look at the pole, and you'll be fine. You've just heard that. Okay, your kid's been bitten by a snake. What are you thinking? I don't know if that's a good idea. I mean, I've got to do something to make this better. I've got to do something to fix this situation. This is bad. I've got to do something. There's no way that looking at a snake on a pole would ever cause the poison pulsing through my body to stop working and stop killing me. There's no way that could work. And God says, well, that's, that's your option. And yet, and so what is God calling the people to do? He's calling the people to believe to trust his word and to trust his work. He's wanting them to see that there's nothing you can do to rescue yourself from the poison of the snake that is in your veins. And I believe that is the same truth God wants us to hear because we read the next verse. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 15 talks about looking at a snake on a pole to have life. Verse 16 talks about the Son of God who's come to give us life. Listen, he's saying we're like the people in Israel. We've not been bitten by a poisonous snake, and this poison is going to be killing us, but we have been bitten, as you would have said, by sin. And there is sin pulsing through us. There is sin affecting every part of us. And this sin that has impacted us, the sin that we live out of, it is going to cause our death. And we can try to work and we can do all kinds of things to try to get rid of it. And he says the only thing that's going to get rid of it is looking at the one who was lifted up like the snake was lifted up in the wilderness. Looking up at Jesus. Because what's happening? That snake represents the curse, this curse that comes upon mankind and this curse that's lifted up. I look at that, I believe, and I'm cured. Jesus, in taking our sin upon himself, becomes the curse for us. And as we look to Jesus and as we trust him to take away our sins and give us new life by faith, we are made right with God. That's the hope we have. It's the only hope that we have. And so he goes, continues in in verse 15, or verse 17. He says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he is the name of the only Son of God. And so this is telling us that when Jesus has come, he didn't come to condemn us. He didn't come to condemn us, but to rescue us. And sometimes we'll hear people say that, well, see, church, you shouldn't be talking about sin and stuff that's going to make people feel bad and condemn people because that's not your job. Jesus didn't come to do that, and so you shouldn't. And I would say, that's exactly right. Jesus didn't come to condemn anybody, and we don't come to condemn anyone because the reality is that no one has to be condemned because everyone is already condemned. Do you understand that? Our sin condemns us. The law of God is what condemns us. How many lies have you told in your life? How many things have you stolen? How many immoral thoughts have you had? 
we realize we are condemned already. And so the hope of the gospel is that Jesus has come to rescue us. He has come to rescue us that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And so Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus who's living in the darkness about new life, about new life that comes through belief, about being born again that leads to this seeing the kingdom of God. And so this reality in these verses is this, that you must believe to have eternal life. You must believe. He is the only way to salvation. Salvation is found in no one else but Jesus. Sometimes people would ask the question, well, what about those who don't hear about Jesus? Come tonight, we're going to spend a night talking about that question, because that's a significant question. Okay? The Bible has answered it really clearly, though. But you must believe in Jesus to have eternal life. And Jesus rescues. He rescues those who believe from the condemnation they deserve. The condemnation that we all deserve. The condemnation. We are born in a flawed fashion. We live out that flaws. And what do we deserve? Condemnation. But Jesus has come to rescue us from that. And what does that require of us then? As we seek to be a church who is faithful to God, to go and make disciples, it requires us to call unbelievers to surrender their lives to Jesus. They must not simply be told about Jesus. They must be called to surrender, to submit to Him, to live for Him. So, belief in eternal life, born again, kingdom of God. Let's look a little more and see what this verse says then in verse 18 or 19, it says this, and this is the judgment. Okay, okay, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things, let's pause, who's that? Everyone who does wicked things, who's that? That's us, every one of us. See, verse 4, it says, For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will not perish. This world is going to perish apart from Jesus, right? Because why? Because we are all these who do do, do wicked things. Why do we do them? Because the, well, back to the verse 20. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest their work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes into the light that it may be clearly seen what the works of, have been carried out by God. Now, up in verse 19, why is it that we walk in darkness? Verse 19, why is it that we walk in darkness? It says that people love the darkness. What do we love? We love our sin. We love, listen, we use this phrase around here often. I do what I do because I want what I want, and I want what I want because I love what I love. So I see these acts of sin in my life. Why are these acts of sin? Why do I do them? Because I want it. Well, I just want, I want it. But then I'm thinking, why do I want it though? And that gets to the root because that's what we love. Listen, We have to be born again. Why do we have to be born again? Because we're in darkness and we love darkness. This fundamentally flawed way that we are born is to love the darkness. And what has Jesus come to do? He's come to rescue us 
from this darkness. And the question then becomes, well, how do I get rescued from something I love? I mean, that's a great question, right? How do I, if I love something, how does it change to love something different? And I would argue that the, what transforms our love is a greater love. Is a greater love. We love something more. Okay? And so, I mean, we could think about this in real simple terms. If I offered you broccoli or a shake from Dairylicious, what are you going to choose? Right. Yeah, if you say broccoli, all right, fine, whatever. Okay. But we recognize why is it? Because we love that. Now, what's going to change that love? I'm not sure what changes that love, but it would have to be, well, actually, it'd be this a love that you know that keep drinking those milkshakes is going to, and the doctor said, you keep drinking those, you have a heart attack, and you're going to die soon, and you need to start eating broccoli. And it's like, okay, I'm going to love broccoli now because I understand I, there's something more that I'm going to love than those milkshakes. And I love life more than I love milkshakes, so I'm going to surrender that love. You get that principle? Okay, so the principle in Scripture is that we love the darkness and hate the light. Why in the world would we ever turn to love the light when I love my sin, I love doing what I do? It's because I begin to understand that apart from the work of God, I am condemned. I live in darkness. The wrath of God is upon me. But there is a Savior who has been incredibly good to me. That he has loved me. Every good thing in my life has ever, I've ever had comes from him. And that he is willing to take my sin upon himself. The stuff that's condemning me. He is taking that upon himself. And he's nailed to the cross. He's lifted up. And as we look to him, we can be born again. That's the new life. That's what transforms our love. What transforms our love is a greater love. What's better to love than me? Jesus. That's the answer to all of us. Because frankly, what we all love most is us. I love me. That's why I do what I do, because I want what I want, because I love what I love. Now God changes all that by the gospel. And he says, this is life. This is light. This is the kingdom of God. And it's all been provided for you. Will you believe it? Will you trust it? And that is a transforming love that causes us to know, love, and live for Jesus. So in this part, we recognize these three ideas. The first idea is this, that you must love the light to leave the darkness. See, you can't just hate what the darkness is doing and leave the darkness. Because sometimes there's stuff that you're doing and you know it's destructive and you know it's terrible and you know you need to leave it. And so you're like, I'm, I'm going to turn away from that darkness, but I'm still in darkness. So I'll just turn to something else and I'm still in darkness. I must love something. I must love the light to come out of darkness. As we understand this, we see that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that captures our heart and then transforms our lives. That is the greater love. And then we'd see this. That faithfulness requires us to call non-Christians to come into the light. And that is our responsibility as believers. That we are calling people to be born again so they can see the kingdom of God. We are calling people to, to believe in Jesus Christ so they can have eternal life. We are calling people to turn from the darkness and to love the light and their lives to be transformed. And calling them into the light with the beauty of the gospel is transformative. We want them to love, 
to love the light. And what's the result of that? As they recognize this gospel, they love the light. They learn to love God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that then overflows in loving others as I love myself. My love's been transformed. Everything's different. My life is changed because of the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the work that God's done in us. How many of you would say, amen, that is what God has done in my life? And you know what? We have not only has God done that in our lives, now we have a privileged responsibility to take this message and let, tell it to others, to teach the gospel, to teach the gospel with an aim to persuade others to know, love, and live for Jesus. That's our task. It's a task that God's giving us, and it's a task that's not done yet. How many of you know people very close to you that are still living in the darkness and love their sin, and if Jesus comes back, they're condemned? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Well, we're going to wrap up our service this morning with a song. It's Facing a Task Unfinished. And I want to encourage you to allow this song to be a song of confession for some of our failures in reaching others with the gospel but also a song of promise that, God, I want to serve you in this task that's unfinished, this beautiful gospel that our world needs to know. I want to be an instrument that is used to bring light into a dark world, to bring life to people who are dead, to see people born again who are fundamentally flawed, that we would sing this together. And I would encourage you maybe this morning that God's working in you in such a way that you say, I need, just, I need to draw a line in the sand and be different. And maybe this morning you want to come forward. I'll be up front if you want to talk or maybe you just want to come and pray quietly. But as we sing, I want you to have an opportunity to respond to what you've heard and what we're going to sing. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. And we thank you that you love us. Lord, you have given us what we need to know to be born again, for our lives to be fundamentally transformed. Lord, you have given us Jesus, and if we repent and believe and trust him, that we can have eternal life, that we can see the kingdom of God. Lord, the darkness that surrounds us, it is, it, it's intimidating. But God, you are the light. And because you are the light, that that light can shine in us and we can take that light to those who are living in darkness. And Lord, use us. Use us as a church to make lives brighter as we communicate this gospel of Jesus Christ. God, stir in us. Give us a holy boldness and a passion to see lives transformed for your glory. And then God, help us to put aside our fears and our worries and make us bold gentle, loving, gracious people who testify to your grace and your love. Lord, help us to know, love, and live for you and to call others to do the same. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.